Mustafa. Uh, we have another episode. This is episode 87 and we have another very special guest. Uh, I'm flattered and I'm very excited to introduce you to Shane uh, Melanson. Uh, he's the CEO and Melanson Developments, uh, a commercial real estate investor in uh, Calgary, Alberta, author of Club Syndication and host of the Investic, uh, Investing Advantage. So you should go and check that out. I'm sure it's going to be on um, iTunes and probably all over uh, all over the place also. But Shane, I appreciate you for joining me today. Yeah, no, it's good to be here, Martinez. Awesome, awesome. Let, look, uh, people came here for the content, so let's dig in. Let's dig in and, and, and see uh, what we can cover today. And there's more than a few things that we can cover. Uh, sure. But first of all, maybe if you just tell us a little bit of your background and the, and the story, how did you get involved in real estate business? Sure. So... Um... I am a, a developer. Uh, I, I basically develop retail industrial properties today, uh, looking at multifamily and, and townhome developments. But I started probably like a lot of real estate investors where I, I kind of initially got into the fix and flip back in 2004. Uh, and I did that for, I don't know, probably three years. And during that time, I, I got a job at um, Sun Life Financial, which is a major um, uh, insurance company here in, in North America where I was lending about 200 to 300 million dollars a year and I started to see how you know really big players were investing in commercial real estate and it was uh, there was a couple of meetings where it was a little bit different we weren't meeting with say um, large REITs or publicly traded companies we'd meet with an individual that would come in and they were buying say a five or eight or $12 million property. And I was always curious, like how does someone, you know, an individual buy such a big property? And that was kind of the first time I started to see syndications. They were actually going out, they, they put a little bit of money into the deal, uh, but they were really experts at finding great properties that had some sort of value add component generally. And then they would go out, raise the capital and, uh, and, and go on to the next deal. And I mean, these individuals, uh, I've since uh, done some business with them, uh, but back then it was, it was um, not very well known, I would say, number one. Number two, because this is going back to 2000 and I guess six, 2007 when I was at Sun Life. And um, I mean, but, but they've gone on and, and created you know, substantial wealth. And uh, I was very fortunate um, where in, I think it was, it was at that time when I was at Sun Life, uh, I met my wife. Uh, she was an interior designer and she was seeing me, she would actually help me uh, renovate and fix some of the houses I was doing. And she was, she would tell her dad, uh, who I didn't know at the time, but later found out that um, they were one of the biggest uh, retail developers or not retail, uh, commercial developers and land developers in um, Canada. And I've been around for about 97 years. He started to kind of see my my uh, ambition and asked me to go on a couple of trips with him uh, to find out whether or not I think you know if he if he actually really wanted to work with me uh, and um, we became partners and and that's really how I started to learn the business. Beautiful, beautiful. And again, I'm looking at the Sun Life Financial. That's that's the company that you worked before, right? So they, they yeah yeah. So they they kind of. They, they are one of the largest life insurance companies in the world, as it says here, uh, established 1865, so a long time ago. So again, that kind of gave you the insight into like, you see all these people coming in and they're looking to get the financing for these large, you know, 12 up to, you know, and more 
uh, like million dollar worth properties. And it was like, how does the game work? So what exactly. was your personal journey, uh, you know, into the multifamily syndication space? So my, my personal journey was, um, so I always liked multifamily to start because it was, it, it, I understood it, right? I didn't understand office. Uh, I eventually started to understand and really liked industrial and, and frankly, I liked retail too, but, uh, you know, with, with what's going on in the world today, retail, uh, is having some challenges, but, um, I remember in 2005, 2006, I put together just a, a horrible looking presentation to take to a gentleman that owned about uh, a dozen Boston pizzas. So it's a franchise here in Calgary. And I knew him from the gym because I worked lots of jobs. Like I was always hustling and trying to, you know, even though I had a job downtown, I still worked, you know, nights at a bar, fixing and flipping. And then I worked at a gym as well. So I had, you know, kind of four things on the go. And I put together this deck and I went to him and I said, look, there's a discrepancy between Edmonton and Calgary in terms of a multifamily property. I think at the time it was say 80,000 a door. And in Edmonton, it was about 55, 60,000. And I said, based on my research and experience, which was pretty limited at the time, it was more like a gut feel that there shouldn't have been such a big Delta. And so I, I, I presented it to him and he liked it, but I don't think he had faith uh, and, and probably rightfully so, because I, I wasn't, um, I would have hustled, but uh, I really didn't have the complete picture on how to invest in, in apartments at the time, but I continued on it. And, um, and like I said, once I met uh, my father-in-law, he started to really kind of put the whole picture together for me as, as you called it. And as I call it the game of commercial real estate. So at that point, it was like, here's how you raise capital. Here are the type of deals we're looking at. And so we went down to the U.S. in 2008, 2009 during the financial crisis and uh, helped his company or his family company buy about 750 units uh, in Houston and Dallas. And so at the time, there was very few investors looking at these properties. I mean, you can imagine this is when everyone thought the world was, was kind of coming to an end and uh, there was a lot of fear in the market. So I, I'm, I don't think that we're there yet given, given kind of the, the state in 2020, but I can tell you that there's certainly a lot of similar attributes in the market, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of uh, questions in terms of what, what's really going to happen. I would say the difference is the fundamentals are probably different in the sense that there's a lot of people losing jobs. Um, and, and really there's, you know, a pandemic is, is quite different than a, than a financial crisis. But what I would say is when there's uncertainty and fear, it's generally when sophisticated, smart investors start coming back into the market. And, um, and so uh, back in 2009 to 2011, we weren't competing. I mean, today, uh, go out and try to buy a, a, a great multifamily property. You're competing with 25 other bidders, or at least six months ago you were. And, and really, it's, it's the person that has the lowest cost of capital. And... Um, <laughs> and really just, you know, is, is not buying on today's metrics. They're really buying on either future growth or, or whatever their, whatever their uh, you know, risk parameters are. Very difficult for syndicators or private investors to compete with. I think that that's going to change. Yeah, buying on a pro forma and a, and a gut feeling. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Got it. So 
Okay, so like I think a lot of audience are not familiar a little bit with the you know Canadian market, but uh, like what what specific market are we talking about? Like where, where you're based currently? You're in Calgary, Alberta, right? Yeah, yeah. So okay. I'm based in Calgary, but I've done business in the U.S. and I've I've done business and and actually right before um, uh, the pandemic, I was actually um, working on a couple of properties in Phoenix. But now with travel bans, uh, I mean, I just, I wasn't, I wasn't able to kind of pursue them. Um, so but can, thing, yeah, go ahead. No, no, no. Sorry. sorry. Maybe, maybe there was something uh, worth mentioning. No, I was just going to say that. So in, in Canada, I mean, it's, um, the dynamics are similar in, but they are different. There's nuances for sure between Calgary or uh, Canada and the U S. Uh, but I primarily now focus across Canada. Uh, I try to stay as close to home as possible because I've done investments as far as Toronto and, and even out to Halifax. Um, but I think if you're, if you've been in the business for a while, you understand that you have a competitive advantage when you're investing close to home, right? Because mm -hmm. there you, you have the relationships, you can go drive by it, you can look at it. And because I do developments now, um, I like to be able to go see that. And I've got the relationships and connections like right here, right? That's my competitive advantage. Uh, I had a gen I had a conversation with a guy in New York who's looking to raise some capital for development there. And he was asking me, you know, if I was interested. And I said, well, in what capacity? Because I add zero value to coming into your market. I'm dumb money, right? Like I'm, I'm, I'm the bigger fool. And uh, he said, no, uh, you know, basically just looking for, for equity. And I said, okay, well, if that's the case, then, then maybe there's something to talk about. But frankly, I'm raising equity for my own deals and I'm finding so many right now that I'm not sure uh, I'll, I'll be an investor, but let, let's continue the conversation and, and see where it goes. But, uh, yeah. Okay. So talking about raising equity for your own personal deals. So uh, can you kind of give a few insights, you know, for the audience who are looking, because again, at the same time, we have a lot of guests uh, who are multifamily syndicators, you know, builders. Uh, but a lot of them are kind of in the States, you know, Southeast, Southwest. So can you give a few, you know, pros and cons, you know, Canada, Canada versus U.S.? Well, I think in the U.S., um, from, from what I can see with the Jobs Act and, and the various regulations, and I'm not going to pretend to be an expert like the 506B, 506C, where you can essentially, you know, one of them allows you to market to a broader base of investors. And it's why I think you see so many podcasts, so many YouTube channels, because, in the U.S., you're, you're, I think that there's probably more flexibility on marketing yourself to raise capital. And I mean, I didn't start my podcast or write my book to raise capital because I already have a very good group of investors that have been with me. Uh, I, I have other um, reasons, and one of which is to find more deals because, as you know, like smart money follows great deals, right? And so if I can see a deal first before anybody else, that's a huge advantage. Um, but your question specifically on raising capital, what I would say is, I think that um, my experience is uh, new investors to the world of commercial real estate and whether it's multifamily or industrial, whatever it happens to be, I think that they, they, um, they take this marketing approach. And I, in terms of going like um, broad versus identifying 20 to 50 investors that you want like I call it your dream 50. Uh, it's a concept I learned from Chet Holmes. I think he calls it his best buyer strategy. And, and now, now there's, there's a lot of people that are out kind of teaching it, but Chet was, I think really the, the first person and he worked with Tony Robbins and um, 
long, long story short, the idea behind it is you're strategically going after partners and investors that um, would be a good fit, right? And so, and, and if you think about it, um, like I'm helping a gentleman right now who's, who's uh, buying a 57 unit apartment building. And uh, he started with more of a broad approach. And I said, look, who knows you right now? Because the people that already know and trust you uh, and like you, then they're far more apt to invest in your first deal, right? When you're out trying to raise capital, um, they're really betting on the jockey first and the deal, right? So if, if, if you are going to someone that you've never met and you don't have a track record, uh, I, I think it's, it's a longer road. Uh, I mean, certainly you can do it. I mean, I've, I've got a buddy who, who has a daily podcast and he just, he just raised, you know, a significant amount of money for his first deal, but it, it was like 18 months of a daily podcast. So call that 500 episodes and whatever he invested to get there. Um, that's one road for sure. But if you've got, let's say 10 business owners or 10 people that are doctors, dentists, engineers, people that are making enough money, right? Cause you really want to be going after accredited investors from my perspective. And you, you like consciously have those types of conversations. And I would always start raising capital before I need the money because generally what happens is um, I have a deal under contract. I need to raise 2 million bucks in 30 days and that desperation comes off. And, and unfortunately it, it just, um, it usually doesn't go well. Right. Like, I mean, if, if you've been in the game, like, so for me, if, if I've got a deal, uh, it, it's much easier for me to raise capital because I have a track record and I've got 30 or 40 investors that have been with me. But if it's your first deal, usually you want to be able to show people like the concept of what you're going after, show them something that used to be a real deal and say, these are the type of properties I'm looking after, call it a mock pitch deck, something along those lines, and just start that dialogue, right? Because if you wait until you've got 30 days, I just feel that you're putting yourself behind the eight ball. And um, yeah, I just see too many, too many investors get frustrated and uh, essentially give up way too early. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's great. So talking about kind of first steps and, uh, you know, commercial real estate investing, again, I'm looking, you have a book, it's called Club Syndication, uh, which of course, it's available at uh, shanemelanson.com. Uh, of course, the link is going to be as always down below for you to do so. It's a, a, you can download the book, uh, it's PDF. So can, but can you talk about uh, the book itself, how it can help those people who want to get involved in, you know, multifamily syndication, like what should, what should they expect in that book? So the book really gives you kind of a high level overview of the process, right? From controlling a property to um, raising capital to the type of structure. I think that's one of the biggest challenges. And it's kind of funny because the structure is fairly straightforward. LP, GP, limited partner, general partner, um, what controls and risks are going back and forth. Like there's other books on how to raise capital out there and they're very good. Uh, but my experience is that a 250 to 300 page book, most people don't get through, right? With mine, it's like, uh, I used to get asked to go to coffee quite often. And, and funny enough, it was from commercial real estate brokers, right? So these are people that are in the game and they're saying, Shane, how do I raise money like you? And, uh, you know, for a little while it was fine to go out for coffee, but eventually when it's happening every, every, uh, week, 
uh, it just wasn't scalable. And so I thought, okay, you know what, I'm going to basically put my process for raising capital in a small book, right? 55 pages, you can read it in an hour. And it's, it's like the essence of uh, from start to finish, how to raise capital. Now there's, there's always going to be nuances, but frankly, in my mind, no book is going to be able to contemplate all the different variations and, and uh, uh, ways or, that a deal can go. Uh, but, but this should give you, uh, if you're looking to raise capital, a very good framework to think about it. And my approach, like I said, I don't focus on starting a podcast or blogging or website because I've raised $25 million. I never had a website. I guess I did have a website, but it had nothing to do with raising capital. I didn't have a podcast until about a year ago. I, I just wrote the book. So none of those things were necessary for me. Um, and so obviously I'm not going to teach people how to do that. I think that they're great tools these days. And I think that you can kind of bolt them on, but I, I, I would be, um, it'd be disingenuous, I guess, for me to, to proclaim that's the only way to raise capital. I think that there's, there's different strategies and certainly how I learned it, you know, watching my father-in-law, it was like, you sit down face to face, one-to-one with a person and you explain the deal. Right. I didn't, I, I still don't, I don't invite 20 people into a room and do a dog and pony show and present um, because that's not usually, uh, at least that's not how I was taught. And it's not how guys that are worth $50 million invest. Right. It's usually one-to-one. You look a guy in the eye, whether it's at his office, you know, my office, you know, it, it, there, there's a hundred places that I've met people. Um, and, and like I said, I'm, it's not the only way to invest, right? It's not the only way to raise capital. It's just the way that I've raised capital mm-hmm. and because it works, I'm going to continue to do it. I know it's not as scalable. It's not as sexy as being able to put on a, you know, a webinar and, and a presentation. Uh, and maybe one day I'll, 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 um, um, it's not like I'm that old, but, but, uh, maybe I'll, I'll learn the new ways of, of raising capital and get away from that. But that's, that's just, uh, yeah. um, yeah. my, my, uh, experience experience so far yeah definitely yeah I, I do understand where you're coming from and you know the old school uh you know the old way definitely works always you know as like face-to-face conversation is always gonna work of course uh and again like i come across personally myself uh through the podcast or through the business you know that a lot of people especially in us uh, like i just met a few people from canada just like yourself but in U.S., they do talk about and build, uh, in particular, this social media presence, which yeah. in this day and age, like we're talking via Zoom and people are now watching this on YouTube or they're listening on iTunes and they're like, hey, you know, that's the way to go with the information in this day and age. So thinking about these strategies, diversifying their own approach on different mediums at the same time, I think it's a good way to go, you know, in the future or, or now. So talking about... Well, actually, this- I, I, let, let me just Please. kind of make a comment on that because I think sure. it is important, like... Um, I tell my clients when they are looking to raise capital, I said, look, people will Google you, right? Mm -hmm. And so depending on what your online presence is, because when I was in investing initially, people didn't really Google your name, right? They didn't Google Shane Melanson. What are you doing nowadays? That that's almost like a given. So depending on the type of, um, images and photos and what you're doing, like I, I, I tell everyone that I'm working with is like, be intentional, right? Like if, if family's important, then that's fine. But having a bunch of, uh, and this is just my opinion, right? But putting out a bunch of like 
strong political or negative crap on social media, I just think like that is not going to help you. Right. I mean, I, I, I can't imagine how, I mean, certainly it's going to be polarizing, but um, from, from my perspective, it's like, look, I have my beliefs on certain things, but I don't need to share that with the entire world because like, they're just, they're, they're for me. And it, if, if it's not going to add value, then I just don't share it. And so um, I'll, I mean, if you look at my Instagram, my Facebook, a lot of it is like, you know, out on the boat with my family, mountain biking with my, you know, like people that I really enjoy hanging out with. Certainly I'll take pictures of properties that I'm touring, right? I want people to know who I am as a person and then who I am professionally. And, uh, and I think that those are, those can definitely help, but a lot of the stuff I see out there, I think would hurt because it's just, um, it's either negative or it's noise. And I just stay away from that. Yeah. Well, definitely you have to be very clear with your marketing message and you, first of all, you have to decide, do you want to be an entertainer or do you want to be an investor? You know, so great point. Great point. So that's what it comes down to. So talking again, I just want to mention a few things again about the book. Uh, and should people expect uh, just about the capital raising? Is it going to be about multifamily, uh, you know, asset class just in general? Or is it going to be about the construction also? Because I know you do a little bit of development. You know, I don't talk too much about the development in the book um, because most new investors, I don't think, um, like construction is just like and doing development, ground up development is is pretty advanced, right? I, I'm fortunate and I didn't start there. I'd been investing for 12 years and then my partner uh, has 25 years in the construction world, right? Doing a lot of big projects. And so he was really the guy that does, look, I go to all the meetings and if I speak to someone, uh, they would think that I'm, I'm like a construction expert. But if you're a if you've been in the business for 30 years, then you'll know probably pretty quick that I'm the guy that knows the least in the room. And, and I'm okay with that, right? Because I'm surrounded with good people. I ask questions and I don't come off as the person that always has all the answers. Um, so the book itself, I don't really talk too much about that because what I would say on the construction side of things, uh, and, and I probably didn't get into this in my book, maybe in an update I will, it's a lot of it's all about debt right? Because you need, let's say, let's just say you need um, $5 million for a project. Well, probably 65 to 75% of that is going to be debt. And yet very few people uh, understand the world of debt and, and, and the risks and what's involved. I mean, in the US, what's great is for the most part, you can get non-recourse, right? You don't have to put up any type of covenant. Now you do need to have personal net worth and, and, and whatnot. But I mean, if, if there's not a lot of risk, Generally, you can buy a sponsor to be able to come into your deal. In Canada, you don't have that, right? It's almost unheard of to have non-recourse debt. And on construction, forget about it, right? You are, and, and I think in the U.S. too, on construction, you do have to guarantee your loans. Because frankly, the banks are looking at that saying, you know, we want you to have skin in the game. We don't want you to walk away from this deal. So I don't talk about that in the book specifically. And I don't talk about specifically multifamily. I talk about commercial real estate. Um, because in my experience, anyways, there's nuances because there's different lenders that will focus on, uh, like in the U S you have Fannie and Freddie and they don't lend on commercial properties. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, same as in Canada, you have CMHC. You're not going to have those guys lending on an industrial building or an office building for that matter. But, uh, but beyond that, 
um, the principles and the fundamentals. That, that's usually what I try to focus on, right? How do you find the right deals so that you can actually get the money, both equity and debt? How do you control those deals, right? Put yourself in a position to be able to do them. Um, and, and controlling, like when I first started, um, I didn't have the money to be able to buy these deals. So my value was in finding opportunities that would um, get an investor excited. I always say, I need to justify my existence in a deal. And so to go out and find like a coupon clipper, like a 6% yield, I mean, investors are gonna go to the stock market where they can get 7% or 6%, but they have liquidity, right? If they're gonna come into my opportunity, I need to show them something that's going to be, you know, exciting, interesting, right? Like, and, and certainly the, there might be a little more risk, especially on a development deal. Um, but I generally de-risk my deals. And I talk a little bit about that. And I really focus on the marketing and sales and, and not taking for granted there's going to be demand, but actually securing that demand in advance. So we can talk about that or, or wherever you want to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So but first thing I just want to mention, you know, that's very interesting. Again, talking about recourse, non-recourse, uh, you know, financing, like comparing to the U.S. Again, if, if you have to put your own assets on the line, if you're looking to build a project, that might be tricky for somebody who is just getting started, you know, so, so that's something to think about. I want to talk again about your personal, you know, um, deal underwriting, maybe a little bit, maybe the deals that you're currently looking for. Because again, as I mentioned before, like I have no clue what's going on currently in Canada. And by sure. the way, that you sound like you said that you're focusing more on Canadian market at the moment. So maybe you can talk about the current deals, what you're actually looking for. Sure. So um, when I, so I've got a current development right now, it's a retail development. And I, I alluded to it earlier where, where I said that I try to de-risk my deals as much as possible. So I put the land under contract and I secured a tenant before I remove conditions, right? So I have an anchor tenant. It's a six or $7 billion company that, so I feel comfortable with that covenant, right? They, they're going to be there for the next minimum 15 years. So from there, um, I now have, let's say I bought just under two acres. Now I have about an acre of land for free, free essentially, right? And, and now it's, it's taken a lot longer, right? But we have two more tenants and we have, um, that we signed up during the pandemic. Um, now, what am I looking at today? I'm not looking at retail today. Um, it just so happens that we bought that two years ago, right? So I have to still work through the process and, and, and fortunately our tenants are, you know, they're Amazon proof and, and COVID proof and all that kind of stuff. But, but um, I guess nothing is, is completely um, immutable to, to what's going on. Mm -hmm. uh, what I'm looking at right now, I'm looking at a portfolio of industrial buildings. Okay. So I have, um, I put together a, a bit of a, uh, not a pitch deck, but this is going out very targeted, right? So I sent it out to two people last week and I said, here's a portfolio. I've narrowed it down from 10 to three. Uh, I'd like to do an industrial condo. So these buildings are multi-bay, small multi-bay industrial warehouses. Okay. And the idea would be to put a condo title on it, just like you would buy an apartment building and, and condominiumize it and potentially sell it off. Um, and the reason I say that is because I have experience doing that here, even though it was a ground up development and we did multi-bay industrial. So I know the demand, I know what the price per square foot is. And basically I just look at it as an arbitrage. If I buy it for 110 a foot and I can sell it for 175 to 200 a foot, 
and it costs me 15 to $20 a foot to convert. And it takes me three years. You know what I mean? So you just, you just run the numbers and it's just like, here's what the IRR looks like. Uh, here's the downside, right? I don't think I would want to do a ground up development today because there's just uncertainty on materials, costs. I mean, can I actually hit those numbers? But if I can buy a building that's existing and I can add value through it and I can, and I still have a, call it a seven and a half to 8% yield on my hold, then I've got downside protection and I've got upside. Maybe it's not as much upside, but the, uh, the risk is lower. So those are two things. And then I'm looking at um, doing infill um, smaller multifamily or townhomes. Mm -hmm. That you're going to be, you, are you going to just plan to sell those or going to keep them? What, what, what is the, what is the strategy on those? It, it, it would depend, but likely uh, rental. And the reason for that is, um, and this goes back to financing, right? Like mm -hmm. it, it, it's funny how most things go back to financing and, and debt really. Yeah. And if I do for sale, I need pre-sales. And so today that's more challenging. But if I go leasing, I don't need to have pre-leasing to get my construction financing. And my construction financing is probably going to be two and a half to three percent cheaper, and I'll get much higher leverage on the rental basis than I will on the for sale basis. Mm -hmm. So, how many current like when it comes to AUM, like how many units are we currently talking about, like in the, in your personal portfolio? Um, right now, how many units do I have? Yeah. So I have a twenty-one unit apartment building in Edmonton. I've sold a lot of my stuff. I had an 1,153 acre development out in Ontario uh, and we sold that. Uh, it was good timing. And like I said, we got rid of all the apartments in the US um, and then I have my, uh, my retail development. So I don't wanna say that I could see that the market was, was um, what's the word? I, I sense that the market was frothy in 2017, 2018, 2019. So all my deals were in and out, right? So when we did the industrial development, the plan was very clear. It's like, we're going to build, you know, this $12 million industrial buildings, three of them, and with the goal of selling them. And that's what we did. And so we're quite happy that we did. On this retail development, the plan was very clear. Like if we get these type of tenants, we will keep it. If we don't get these type of tenants, we'll probably sell it, right? Yeah. And, and so it's just, I mean, each person has their own uh, investment philosophy, if you will. And, and I, I have mine and, and I you know, uh, convey that to the investors that work with me. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, they're like, we're in and out of deals, right? Because that, as a developer, that's where you get your biggest bang for your buck. Now, if I have yeah. a core asset, then I'll hold it, right? And so right now with the way the market is, I'm anticipating probably in the next two years, we'll start to buy a lot more and, and buy for hold. But when you get to the top of the market, like we were in the past couple of years, it was buy and get out, right? Now, residential buy and get out is six months and commercial, it's more like two years, but mm -hmm. I guess the principle is similar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So again, as I said, you know, you, you made a good choice by, again, all of the builders, like what happened prior to 2008, a lot of builders went, you know, under, again because yeah. you know what happened happened but you kind of predicted and you knew the upcoming recession is going to happen of course nobody predicted the covid is going to be here which this like 10x the entire recession you know part but uh, if you can get those you know long-term uh, companies that are going to be leasing your properties you know on your developments like you said the seven eight billion dollar companies 
uh, I mean, that's definitely works out, but you know, the question is how do you find these uh, tenants? But my question is again, for these uh, multifamily properties that of course you're, you're gonna be building, uh, you know, more properties and now we have the 21 unit deal. So the question is how do you manage uh, when it comes to paying the rents during the COVID times? Well, I mean, knock on wood, like our tenants have been paying. Um, I will say one of the great things about having a podcast is I was able to have conversations with people that were in the business uh, all across Canada and the US and, and not just in multifamily. So I had, I would sit down with guys that I've done business with and this, and so commercial real estate, just zooming out is, is very much a relationship driven game, right? Um, not to say residential isn't, but uh, in my experience, commercial, because the world is much smaller, mm -hmm. uh, it, it very, it, it's very dependent on those relationships. So I would set up meetings, coffee, Zooms, I guess couldn't have too many coffees when, when things kind of got locked down, but, um, but I would sit down or go for walks with people and I'd say like, what are you doing? What like, and like very granular, like what is the email? What is the letter? What are you sending out to tenants? And what's the strategy? What kind of feedback are you getting? And it was not just on multifamily, but on businesses too, on retail, right? Because I was concerned, like what happens if my retail tenant decides that they don't want to pay? So you're having those conversations, then you're having conversations with the banks. Okay, Mr. Bank, look, here's what's happening. Let's work through this together because frankly, you don't want to own this property and I don't want to give it up. So how do we work through? Uh, the first month we might've had a small dip because there was a lot of uncertainty. Right. And I think some tenants thought, okay, you know what, we can just, it, it's going to be a friggin' holiday. I don't have to pay any rent. Um, but we got out ahead of that and we sent them letters saying basically like, look, we, we understand this may be what you're thinking. Um, and, and we didn't use any kind of scare tactics or anything like that. It was just like, look, here are the facts and guess what, if you need help, let us know but here's the resources in Canada. And I know in, in the U S you guys have, I, I don't know what it's called, like the cares act or something to that effect, where essentially uh, the government is it's just giving out free money to people. Right. Uh, similar in Canada, they were giving out $2,000 to people that needed it. So I said to our property manager, let's help people and, and help them facilitate whatever resources they need, because we know that this is going to be a challenge. Let's not wait for them to come to us. Let's get out in front of it. Um, it's like sales, right? If you wait for someone to raise an objection, then you're backpedaling. But if you get out in front of it, then you're far better off because you're not trying to hide behind anything. And, and so for us, that's, that's really what we tried to do. Uh, we've been pretty fortunate. Our vacancy has crept up. Our rents have kind of started to compress a little bit, but I would say that's more a product of our market. So in, in Alberta, the province that I'm in, uh, and specifically the Calgary and Edmonton where, where I have properties were oil and gas dependent, right? Very resource. Uh, and so, as you know, in the past six years, oil has really come off. So not as much jobs and yet there's still development. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's put um, pressure on older properties. Right. And so I learned some lessons like the apartment that I own right now, um, we executed the plan perfectly for the first two years during an up market. And yet uh, I didn't foresee oil would go from 110 a barrel down to 30 bucks a barrel. And so we held onto the property longer than we should have. And so these are kind of lessons that you just learn. Uh, and uh, 
you know, it's still cash flowing and it's still doing fine. We're not going to lose money, but I probably left half a million dollars on the table because uh, back to debt, my, my mortgage on that was five years. Had I looked at it and said, this is a two-year property, not a five-year property, um, I might've done things differently. But those are, those are lessons that sometimes you just have to learn the hard way, if you will. Yeah, well, definitely. So talking about the lessons, you know, again, coming back to the book, you have a club syndication, uh, <clears throat> which is the book that people can get that for free in the website and the investing advantage podcast. So maybe you can talk a little bit, uh, as I mentioned, you know, you knew people who kind of, it helped them to raise capital, you know, it, it, you know, by making these podcast episodes. So can you talk about what do you, what do you cover on your personal podcast? Like, and how often do you put out episodes there? So I put in a, uh, an episode a week and the, the idea behind it when I first started was I just wanted to, um, I wanted to like share helpful information to protect investors as they got into the world of commercial real estate. Cause a lot of guys come in or girls come in from residential and if they don't understand the game, it's very easy to just get um, crushed. And uh, you know, my, my personal story, like I invested once when I was 19, once when I was 26, 27 in two deals where I lost all my money. Uh, my parents, when I was 19, they remortgaged their house. They're both teachers and they lost $100,000 investing in the wrong property, wrong person. And so um, as I started to learn it and as I got mentored and I started to see how people on the inside were investing, i.e. my father-in-law and a few other people, I was like, like no one is teaching this, right? Like, th like they're not um, sharing this type of information. I mean, you know, there's a few people in the U.S. that I've seen that have kind of grown. Um, they're, they're big personalities and, uh, and big social followings. But I'm talking about people that are running like $5 billion, $10 billion companies, and that's all they do. Like you, if you Google the names of these large companies, you would find out who they are. Aside from the odd conference that they get up and speak for an hour and they have to kind of be politically correct, they're not sharing this information because they're too busy running companies. But these are the people that are doing deals. And so when I was a broker and I was networking and doing developments, like, like the, the type of information and insights that you get uh, in, in those type of conversations is vastly different than what... Um, I was used to seeing on, on kind of um, uh, what, what was out in the market. And so I thought, you know what, I'm just going to start to invite uh, some of the people that I'm having conversations with and see if they'd be interested. And, and I have to say, I get great feedback, and I, and, but I wish that more of my network would be open to coming on the podcast. Unfortunately, if you're running a publicly traded company, um, there's so many hoops that you have to jump through to be able to kind of come on to someone's podcast and, you know, like, like my lender at Royal bank. I mean, they're like, yeah, we'd love to, but we, you know, it'll probably take us six months and the questions have to be so scripted that it just wouldn't make sense. Or it will be, it will be more of a pitch about their service. Yeah. Yeah, it could be. Right. And so, so what I do is I basically say, okay, well, how about I just take the conversations that I'm having with people and I'll prepare in some cases, um, you know, 15 to 30 minute um, episodes where it's just solo, right? And I'm, I'm essentially trying to teach and educate people on some of the things that I'm seeing in the market and, and how to 
um, yeah, how to kind of view the game of commercial real estate. And then certainly I have interviews with, with people on there as well. Uh, but um, uh, yeah, between the combination, it's, it's just there to be a resource for people that are looking to, uh, to get into the world of, of commercial real estate. Mm -hmm. Got it. So again, all these resources are going to be on the website, uh, shanemelanson.com. Uh, links down below, grab a book, Collapse Syndication. Again, make sure and go check it out. The Investing Advantage podcast on iTunes. A uh, few things, again, that I came across the website. Shane is offering brokerage. If you're in Calgary, surrounding area, his team can help you with the right commercial property to find that. Uh, some, some of the consulting options uh, when it comes to, you know, raising capital for larger investments or invest passively, that's also available. But of course, all the information is on the website, so I don't have to read it through all. But uh, so Shane, I uh, really appreciate the time today. It's been a real fun talking with you. Uh, again, I would love for people to get in contact, you know, on social media level, because again, we just have so much time available here. But yes. I still feel that you're, you can give so much information away and you're available, you know, to the people like you, you're doing this podcast episode with me, which I'm really grateful for. So what will be those social media main platforms that people can go and reach out? You know, I think that um, uh, I appreciate that. Uh, the, the social channels that I'm probably the most active on would be Facebook and YouTube in terms of, and, and, I'm trying to be on LinkedIn a little bit more as well. But uh, I mean, if you go to my website, you can see all the social links there. So it's Shane Melanson, M-E-L-A-N-S-O-N.com. And uh, at the bottom, there's, there's links and you can kind of uh, easily just see what I'm doing on, on, uh, on those kind of social channels. And I try to be uh, as active as I can, but, but um, you know, it, it goes in waves. When I'm busy with my deals, uh, I, I just, I just, you know, I'm not on, I'm, I'm, I'm not a, uh, what is it like a, a social um, expert in terms of being on there five times a day and posting and whatnot. It's, <laughs> it's usually when I have something meaningful to say. Yeah. I think you have always me something meaning, meaningful to say. You're just a busy person <laughs> who have a time to be on these, you know, mediums and that's perfectly fine. Yeah. So, but I'm very happy to that you have, I've been able to get a hold of you, you know, at least to do this episode, which is going to be very valuable for a lot of you who are watching. But just one thing that I wanted to ask you guys and girls who are watching this episode, if you just pass it along, if you just share it with a friend, uh, you know, colleague or a person that you know, that might be uh, that want to involved in real estate, you know, investing, whatever that's passive, active, uh, make sure to pass it along that message. Uh, again, Shane, I appreciate you, you know, spending this quality time with me today. And guys, as always, I'm going to see you in the next episode. Thanks for watching. Thank you.